Hi, this is Rich. We'll get to the episode in just a second. I'm sure you all are excited to hear from Kelsey. But before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that there's a Patreon now for the podcast. It's patreon.com slash cubecuddle. I'm not going to pitch this a ton. This will be the last pitch that you hear during this episode. I also am not going to start throwing a bunch of amazing premium content behind a paywall. That's not what this is about. The reality is that right now I'm paying for the show out of my own pocket. I have been since the beginning. I want to make it more sustainable. I'd love to get into a position where I'm able to pay someone to produce and edit the podcast, which would mean that I could focus a lot more on recording new episodes for you all to hear. So if you would like to support the podcast right now, there's not a lot more incentive than the good feeling that you get knowing that you're supporting an independent content creator that you enjoy. But I'm hoping to add some more things. And like I said, we'll set some goals like getting a producer. So patreon.com slash cubecuddle. If you're not able to support the podcast that way, or you you just can't do it right now, no problem. I'm so happy that you're listening, and that shows a lot of support right there. So thank you very much. Let's go now to the episode. Welcome to Cube Cuddle, a podcast about Kubernetes and the people who build and use it. I'm your host, Rich Burroughs. Today, I'm speaking with Kelsey Hightower, the inventor of the Hightower rating system and no code. Welcome, Kelsey. Yo, happy to be here with the legendary Rich. We go way back, right? We do. Um... Portland is a small town. I have run into you all kinds of places and seen you speak at tiny meetups that other people probably never would have heard about if they were outside of Portland. So it's always good to see you. You've been really helpful to me, giving me a lot of good advice over the years. And yeah, it's always great to see your face. I wonder when people meet people who say, hey, you gave me a lot of bad advice over my career, but you're still a good person. <laughs> I, I have yet to get bad advice from you, so we'll we'll see. <laughs> I, I should also mention that you work at Google. What's your job title there nowadays? Uh, I am a principal developer advocate. That might be uh, changing here soon. We'll see. But uh, the developer advocacy role that I have, I sponsor some of our larger technical customers or accounts that we have. I work with our product leadership team, so figuring out what we should be building around serverless, what approach we should have, help prioritize the roadmap. I also sponsor some of our partnerships like Esri, you know, they do geodata, helping that team get their product onto Kubernetes. I think they just launched a blog post last week that after a couple, maybe a year or so of work, they now have Kubernetes support for this geodata product. They now support GCP. And just generally thinking about our business horizontally. So I spent a lot of time in those areas. And a lot of you may see me at conferences talking about the stuff that we as GCP is working on. And of course, my personal interests. We've talked on a podcast before. I think it was almost a couple of years ago at this point when I was working at Gremlin. It seems a lot longer than that, though. I usually like to start off with just asking people about their path into tech and into the Kubernetes community. I've heard some of this before. You've done some interviews where you covered this, but not everybody may have heard it. Yeah, I think my path in tech, you know, we like to say it's unconventional, but it, at this point, I believe it's very conventional. 
you decide that you want to get into tech and even the college route isn't super clear about if you go to school for four years, what skills will you have when you are done? So a lot of people will go and say, hey, Python, I heard about that at a conference or a meetup. Let me go get a book about that. Maybe I can learn how to write Python and, you know, let's see what that takes me. So I was one of those people who started, um, I was probably afraid at the age of 18, 19 to go get a job in the tech field. Number one, I didn't go to college. Number two, most of the job postings, and my guess is probably similar today, they want 100 years of experience in everything. 20 years Kubernetes experience. Exactly. So I looked at that and said, you know what? <laughs> I found it less intimidating to like open my own business and decided to have a computer store in a small part of Atlanta. And I just started doing contract work, building a lot of these system administration skills. So you're a business owner, you have a computer store, you're also doing service calls, you know, you have a two or three people working for you. And you start learning how to pull cable. You learn how to order all the things that a small enterprise would need. You rack and stack a few things. You get that printer working. You upgrade people from Novell Netware to, you know, Server 2000. <laughs> and you learn a lot because everyone is business focused in that world, right? They don't really care. They just need this remote office to work with the centralized MS-DOS thing that's on this other office. So you really get focused on just enough technology to make it work. So that's where I honed a lot of my skills, right? As a technologist, it's cool if you know how to install software, upgrade it, patch it, but no one cared about that. They just wanted to know, can you do this top line item? How much does it cost? So I learned how to engage with people, understand what they need and deliver. Because when you're running your own business, you ain't got months to do a project. This, that's very different than what large enterprises do with consultants. This stuff needs to be done in two or three days, tops, in and out. So that's how I honed a lot of my skills. And also during that time period is when the music industry was going through their own transformation around literally a digital transformation. People went from the big Mackie analog boards and all of this stuff to Pro Tools and they needed computers. So I found myself in a lot of music studios. I worked with a lot of people who have won Grammys. Back then, everyone was just trying to compete with the big studios, right? Studio time at that time was 300 bucks an hour for the best studios. But now it turns out you can start to bring in a lot of those plugins they were using. Pro Tools became something you could buy for $1,000. All you needed was a computer and you can get in. So those are the genesis of my tech career. Very people focused, solving problems with just enough technology to make it happen. It's interesting that you have that kind of entrepreneurial background because that's not something that I have a lot of experience with. How do you think that that serves you, the fact that you actually were the person at the top of the food chain for So when you run in a business, and you know my business wasn't very big, right? This is not like the funded Silicon Valley type of company. That business was my livelihood. The decisions I make, that same decision, you have to pay people, regardless if the customer pays you on a time or not. Going over budget means you pay for it, right? You quoted a thing, and if you wanna keep that customer around, you eat the, the misquote. So you learn real quick how to promise what you can actually deliver, right? So. In that computer store, when we closed, there was a lot of prototyping. 
like you almost rehearse the install, right? If we pull these cables in this way, if we set up this network printer in this way with this driver, two reboots, we're back. Because you don't have all day. These businesses are running. And I can remember some of these small insurance agencies, when I go take that computer from a person trying to sell insurance over the phone, they can't sell insurance, right? Because the quoting machine is on that computer. So the longer it's down, that's money for them. So again, we used to rehearse the installs. Boom, 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 super quick swap in and out, bam. There we go, next one. So you really learn how to focus on the business value, right? We, we say that a lot today, but some people are so far from the actual business relationship between the technology and what's actually happening that you don't have enough empathy to understand that forget pie in the sky, right? Yes, you have time to learn new technology, but as a professional, you got to have your knife sharp before you go cut something, right? You don't often get the chance to cut it twice. And what about Kubernetes? So the thing about Kubernetes is that a lot of people saw hype. Oh, they're, all these people are hyping up Kubernetes. Oh, I can't stand the hype. The technology might or might not be okay, but the hype is throwing me off. So I'm upset now. But the truth is, the way I looked at Kubernetes was not as something new. I didn't see something new. I saw something old, finally captured in a way that everybody else could do it. Right? We went from Borg's papers to the Mesos paper, and I don't know about you, but I tried to install Mesos back in the day, and when I was done, it said, all right, now you need to go get <laughs> ZooKeeper, you need to go get seven other things, and I was like, I still don't know how to deploy my app into all of this stuff. So for me, I didn't necessarily get a lot of value back in the early days when people were doing distributed systems, but I knew a thing like a scheduler could be helpful because I was doing that job. I knew having better abstractions would be helpful because I was just working at places like Puppet Labs where we were trying to put abstractions in places that didn't have them already. So when Kubernetes came out, I took a step back and say, yeah, this would be what I would build if I knew how, right? So that's why when people saw me giving talks and workshops, you just saw me just like my mind was blown. Like I remember learning how to do a bash for loop for the first time. You know, you push away from your computer and be like, yo, I actually understand how that works. So Kubernetes was like that for me. So that's how I got into it because I saw it as this checkpoint over all the stuff that people have been doing for the previous 10 years. I saw you do a talk at a very small conference here in Portland, one of those times that I've run into you um, that was called uh, Atomicon that most people probably have not heard of. That was the the talk where you use Tetris kind of as an analogy for the Kubernetes scheduler and the fact that these nodes were suddenly now just a bunch of compute and memory and we didn't care where an app ran because the scheduler was going to take care of that. And I remember that had such a big impact on me because, like you said, we were the schedulers, right? Like, we were the ones doing that. And the other thing that resonated with me right away was the service primitive. Because, like you said, there were these things that, you know, like health checks. We, we all were using health checks already, or most of us were, but we had to roll that stuff ourselves. And, and now it was just like baked to the platform. Yeah, that, and, and actually, I, I really enjoyed when you give a talk and you look at people while you're talking and you give a concept that makes the same feeling I just talked about 
instantaneous be transferred to them. Their body language says it all, their facial expression. They immediately go into thinking mode about how would I do things different now. Now that I know that this is a possibility, now that I know that I could probably do this too, how would I go tackle this other problem? And that to me is like the most rewarding component that came out of Kubernetes for me was leveling everybody up to this new era of distributed systems and then making those systems do what we want them to do versus, you know, oh, I got to learn it and then I'll accept whatever it gives me out of the box. No, this was the new bash. This was the new shell. We could write our own extensions. We can combine them and we can teach them to do whatever we want to do. I can tell you, I, I think that most of us, at least in that audience, were pretty fired up about <laughs> Kubernetes after seeing that talk. You were working at CoreOS at that point. I think now you're like the fourth guest that I've had that worked at CoreOS at some point. I've asked a couple people about this because I find it really fascinating. There's uh, a lot of people that I know who are still very active in the community and extremely influential who, who came through CoreOS. And to me, it seems like that must have been a pretty special place. It was, man. Like Brandon Phillips and Alex Povey, the two co-founders. I remember when I went for an interview, you know, I'm thinking Silicon Valley startup, you know, nice building, all of this. Nope. They had a different, one of the first offices, you know, I think they kind of did the whole garage thing, but one of the offices was called The Farm. And you're like in this weird, you know, kind of, I don't know if it was too sketch, but I was like, when I pulled up, I was like, uh, I don't know <laughs> if we're in the right place. And I walk in and when, you, when they open the door, you can see the entire company, like everyone working on everything in just one shot. But it was so dope because I remember sitting down with the squad and just getting to meet people like Redbeard, uh, Brian, we can call him Brian Redbeard, and Melissa, Brandon, um, another guy named Alex. All of these folks had so much knowledge about the inner workings of operating systems. Uh, the vision for containerization was so dope because Alex Povey at the time just had this vision, like Google's infrastructure for everyone else. Everyone got to the point where we respected it, and there was all the pieces, right? There was Docker. You know, the CoreOS team had built etcd to solve and fill a gap that they knew was a key component in making distributed systems work. We had the centerpiece called the operating system, you know, CoreOS. And so in real time, when you would work on something at the office, two weeks later, we would be at a meetup showing people the new thing. <laughs> right? And that was part of the roles that I took because there's when I learned about how etcd works. I learned how it break. I watched people come to IRC and be like, oh, my cluster is broken. I'd be like, let me guess. <laughs> you have it in an auto-scaling group. Let me teach you about consensus and quorum. And it was really great to really learn distributed systems to that degree and then have the ability to contribute. What kinds of things did you take away from that that maybe still influence you today? You can make the hard things simple. You can actually do it. And, you know, when I looked at etcd and its design, so this is when the wrap paper came out and then the follow-up to the wrap paper that tried to address some of the shortcomings in the original. And then watching the team say, hey, here's how the wrap log works. Here's how it breaks. But you can actually implement this paper 
but it will take a few iterations, but we proved you could actually do it. How simple could an operating system be? What did you need it to actually do in a world like this? So we were able to take very simple ideas and just make them slightly better by using kind of the science because the science at that time went from rigid white papers with math to things like the raft paper that you could actually re-consume and probably say, hey, I can probably bang out an implementation in Golang. So I, I learned that distributed systems don't need to be impossible, especially when you can talk about them outside of the context of the mathematical proofs that people use to justify or explain them. So that was number one. And number two, the biggest thing I also learned was just how fast you can have an impact on the world of technologists. This is around the time where I started doing public speaking everywhere in the world, right? Because when Kubernetes came out and when Fleet and Etsy DM, when I started to understand the big puzzle, at that time, there wasn't a lot of information, right? There were no books, there were no documentation. People were still confused. What does this all mean? And I remember I had this knack for telling the story. Here's what this thing means to you. Here's what's missing. And watch in real time, I'm going to put some glue to the thing you know and the thing you don't know. And when I'm done, it's going to make sense. And then I found out that that's a skill all by itself. The ability to make something complex, simple, and then explain it to someone else so they can do the same. It's uh, interesting to me that you characterize that as telling stories because I've come from a theater background, um, done a lot of writing in the past, and I feel like storytelling is a skill that maybe isn't given enough due in what we do. I don't mean just as developer advocates. I mean people in tech in general because we're telling stories all the time. You're in a job interview. Someone's asking you why you should be working at this company. You know, you're telling stories. I think a lot of times we don't really, we haven't analyzed our experience. You know, I've worked in a lot of production, enterprise, political settings. I know what it's like to try to introduce a new technology and then it takes years to get it to production. All the things you got to do in between, oh, I got to work in dev to now it runs in production. There's so <laughs> many stories around that if you've had the time to really step back and analyze what were you doing. And you have even more fine-grained stories when you have the ability to create things from scratch, right? There's different stories you tell when you're maintaining something someone else created, right? You don't really know the origin. You don't know the genesis of it. But when you've created a thing from scratch and had to really get it to where it needs to go over a couple of year period, there's very interesting stories in that. And then I think the power of storytelling is what do you want your audience to take away? When it's just about, hey, there's this thing called Kubernetes, look how cool it is. Well, maybe you can get away without a very elaborate story, right? Like some games have no plot. Like Mortal Kombat, you beat the other thing. And at the end, they is like, hey, <laughs> here's two paragraphs about why you beat up all those people. It's like, maybe you could have told me that in the beginning, right? And then maybe I would have felt a different way about, you know, taking someone entirely out of their chest. You know what I mean? Like maybe I would have just known if I had a purpose for doing what I just did to all these other folks. But then when you really want to convey something different, like how to think about integrating Kubernetes as part of your culture of engineering. Then you need a different set of stories. And this is when I learned, and it took me just 
just a few years ago to really figure out how to take like the story of hidden figures and weave it into something that even a hardcore tech person would lean into and say, you got my attention and you can hold it. So I think that delicate balance of being true to the hardcore tech folks, but still doing something that someone who is still new or doesn't quite understand it all can look at it and say, wow, that's interesting. And, and one thing I'll add here, this morning, like a few hours ago today, uh, a meeting popped up on my calendar. And I didn't know this person, but apparently I met this person indirectly speaking to a large organization. And they watched how I gave the talk. And I had this Back to the Future theme. I even played a game of Back to the Future, so the story was pretty cool. I said, when So you're I grew still up, playing games in your talks. Well, it was appropriate there because I don't know if you remember, so this company was about learning about cloud native and then the struggle. So I wanted to bring some pragmatism to the to the whole thing. So I remember I had the slide of, you know, Marty McFly in front of the flying car with the lace up Nikes on, iconic movie pose that he had. And so I said, when we think about tech, we, we think about everything being futuristic. We think about all of these advances that if we just had them, things would be amazing. And I said, think about it. You go to the conference, right? And you look on the stage and the demo is clean. Everyone's like, oh, we got 200 million nodes in our cluster. We're deploying apps every two milliseconds. And you're like, damn, <laughs> if I just had some of that future technology, my company will be like two. And I, and I explained to them that as a kid, I remember going to the local video store and you could rent Nintendo games, so NES. This is the late 80s. And I remember I had just seen Back to the Future, the movie. Now remember, this is 8-bit NES here. And you go to the video store and you see the movie cover on the game. You look <laughs> at it, it's like, oh, this game is gonna be so dope. Wait till I get home, it's gonna be crazy. So you rent the game, $2. You gotta bring it back tomorrow. So you get it for like a day or two. You go home, you put it in the NES. And so I had a, you know, emulator. I turn on the game and everyone started laughing because you're an eight bit, there's no 3D, nothing. The game is pretty <laughs> weird too. All you're doing is like dodging potholes. It feels like you're playing Paperboy, but it's been reskinned to be back to the future. And everyone's like, this don't look like the cover. Right, is this even like time travel? It's the same screen, but a different color. I'm not in a different time period. So everyone started laughing because that's the illusion of how we think about tech. We glorify it. And then when we get it ourselves, we start to look under the covers and realize that it's not quite like the movie poster. Yeah, I've always mentioned to folks when this sort of thing comes up that when you're watching a conference talk or you're reading somebody's blog post, that's the best of what they do, right? Like they're not going to tell you about the thing that they tried that didn't pan out or ended up in a bunch of flames. People do once in a while. Once in a while, you'll see a talk or read a blog post like that, and they're always amazing. They're always just totally gripping. But for the most part, people are out there telling you about Maybe it's, maybe it's even aspirational, right? Maybe it's a six-month project that they're like two months into. Yeah, and, and, and the thing is, I just have an innate fear of live demos now. It's been years, and I've been so lucky. <laughs> I build these elaborate demos. I write all the code. I try something new. I try something dangerous. And I try to play it like a jazz player would in a live set. 
and my improvs have turned out well this whole time. And so I'm like, you know, the demo guys probably owe me one. I know I'm due. The next large audience I'm in front of, the demo guys, they're going to pay me a visit. So I have this secret timer knowing that they owe me one. I did see one time where your demo wasn't totally flawless, where like one little thing went wrong, but you handled it really well. Like jazz, I will take a misstep. Honestly, I think people enjoy it when it's like, okay, this is real because, you know, (laughs) but when you recover, people say, okay, respect. But what I'm talking about going wrong is where you're done. Just stop, right? You're sweating. People are like, yo, he should probably stop now. This is, I'm starting to get embarrassed for him. I don't want that feeling. I'm, I'm nervous about that one. So I respect the demo guy. So please don't pay me a visit. I've seen a demo like that, and as an audience member, it's super painful. You just feel so bad for the person. Um, you actually, I think, had tweeted about that meeting that you that you popped up on your calendar earlier today, and you mentioned that this person credited you with having inspired you. Yeah, inspired because, them. yeah, you know, you never know who you're impacting. So when you tell these stories, there's someone in the audience that you make it click for them. And what you also do is you give them permission to be more than their current job title. You give them permission to be as creative as you were on the stage. Because sometimes when people see something, something unlocks and they say, yo, whoa, I understand how that works. I could probably do that too. So then they try it. And then something amazing happens. And so when this person reached out and was like, we worked at the same place now, I made this pivot, I ramped up my skills, and now I'm combining those two things to help other people at scale. And so just hearing that, I was, you're never ready for that kind of feedback, because in tech, typically it's uh, what's broken, what needs to be fixed, what the challenges are. And to have someone be so thoughtful to be able to grab a piece of your time and to hit you with that, it's it's a lot, and it it was perfect timing. That's fantastic. I know that you're very generous with your time. Like I said, you've given me advice before. We've been talking at conferences about random things, and you've given me some advice that really helped my career. I've seen you mentor other people. What kinds of things do you hear about from people when you're having those conversations, like people who aren't as far along in their careers? What kinds of things are they struggling with? People want to do a good job in general, right? People want to do a good job. If you tell me that I can get a, a F, a D, C, or B, or an A, I probably want the A. And if I'm only getting a C right now, and I really want that A, then there's a lot of emotional baggage that comes with that, right? Like this is my current grade, and that grade could represent the current job you have, even though you aspire to a different job. Maybe how much you're making isn't quite enough to do the things that you need to do. And so that means that there's this room for improvement. And you don't understand the pacing when you're just starting out. You don't know how long it really takes to get to the point where you can have a lot more agency on the type of work you do, right? Like my early jobs is you take the one that's being advertised, right? You get there, you try to learn about, hey, how do I process these tickets? What's the rules? And you even repeat the rules back to people. Hey, you know, these are the rules, right? It's not me, it's the rules. 
And it takes a while to learn how to navigate that in a way that you can push back on an organization to say, maybe we should change the rules. And then it takes a little bit more time to say, we can change the rules and I'll take ownership of how we go about it. But again, that timeline is different for everybody. So I think that, you know, puts people into that, you know, we always like to say imposter syndrome. So that's a big part of where people may not understand the timeline. So they feel like they're not on track. They feel like they're falling behind every time a new piece of technology shows up. Oh my God, another new thing. I'm still trying to learn the previous thing. Am I just out of date? Should I just stop now? So what I try to do for them is to say, the fundamentals are roughly the same. Every time you see a new project pop up, very rarely does it introduce a new set of fundamentals. So if you spend time and invest on the fundamentals with your current tool, right? If you're using Nginx today, it's probably a worthwhile investment to go as deep as you can with Nginx. Because when you go on to Envoy, you're gonna realize that a lot of the things you learned in Nginx transfer over to Envoy. You're never really starting over. And you can just see the burden sometimes just come off. Where they say, oh, really? I was like, yes. Don't let the names fool you, serverless and cloud native. Park the names. But when you (laughs) just touch the technology, and if you can do it through a lens of confidence where you say, okay, the fundamentals are roughly the same. Let me see how they implement them. Then you can get to that confidence level much quicker and then focus on maybe learning the new ways that it approaches the fundamentals. Yeah, it's it's funny because what you just described is, you know, I was a lot further in my career, but that's one of the reasons why I moved out of SRE is that I just felt this constant pressure with like a new infrastructure tool coming out every five minutes and I could never keep up with them or even find the time to play with all the ones that, that I wanted to. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I think I think focus is key. And honestly, like I said, for me, the fundamentals has been the thing that gives me a lot of confidence. Every time I see something yeah. new, I just try to, on a piece of paper, where are the fundamentals? And then I, I make some assumptions, and then I start digging in, and I find the fundamentals. I was like, whew, all right, I know this place. So let me turn on some lights to see what door I should open first, right? So that's the way I, I try to approach these verses, starting from you know, like the config file or the API. That gets confusing versus what is this supposed to be doing? So I've seen you play with lots of different tools over the last few years. You'd, you'll do things like pick up a tool and do a demo with it like the same day or the next day or something. What is it besides you know those fundamentals, what is it that you think about when you're like approaching a new tool and when you're evaluating tools? I usually have a problem. Like usually the, the best situation is when I actually have a real problem. Like I'm trying to build something out or I'm trying to automate something or maybe I'm prototyping maybe something that I think GCP should build. So at that point, I have a clear goal of what I want to do. I can actually see it. And then it's like, ah, oh, man, I can't do it. But I'm sure I'm not the only person that have ever had this particular problem. So then what I do is I start looking around for things. But I have the fundamental about what I want to do. And I just try a few things. And then when something is close, I say, okay, let me start here. So then what I'll do is follow the tutorials to see if it even works, right? You'll be surprised. A lot of stuff doesn't even, like, it doesn't even work if you follow the base instructions. You're like, all right, I get close to disqualifying it from that point on. 
But then when something works, I say, okay, cool, I got it. Let me see if I can integrate it to the thing I want to do. And when that works, that exercise of trying to integrate it after I went through the happy path and then try to integrate it, that's enough usually for me to tell a story. So you're right. If you gave me a new piece of technology and if I had about two hours, my guess is I could probably tell a decent story about how people should consider the technology and where they could actually integrate that technology. What are some of the cloud native tools that have been sort of catching your eye? Like what are some of the things that you're interested in that are around right now? Yeah, I'm really feeling like gatekeeper, open policy agent. The Rego language that you use to create the policies, that's a little that's a little rough, right? Like I, I, I have to always go back and get a refresher every time I try to write some policies with that. But I like the approach. It's like the Swiss Army knife for doing, um, you know, there's auth in who you are, you know, you log in. But then once you have an identity or a principle, then you can actually pass it to another system where you can evaluate rules. Like you can log into this particular API, but you can't make this particular call. And that's a very hard problem without a good framework. So that particular project, you know, what they did was trying to make something generic platform based that you can actually build different things on top. And the Kubernetes community has taken Open Policy Agent and did something called Gatekeeper, which allows you to take that framework and give Kubernetes some really cool policies around how its objects or how the system can be used. So that one's always interesting to me. Um, there's other projects like um, Vectorize.io. They have a tool called Red Panda. So if you've ever tried to install Kafka, you need Zookeeper, you need a bunch of machines, <laughs> and most people just want something they can send messages to, pop things back off, and hopefully scale. And so when I looked at Red Panda, they have a single binary, they rewrote the thing in C++ for performance, they integrated the consensus stuff for membership and leader election, and so now you can have a single binary and get a compatible Kafka interface, right? So I love when people take existing systems and try to make them super simple and give something people can uh, really work with. I think Kafka, the the project itself, is getting rid of Zookeeper. I think they're working on that. Yeah, so people are learning right over time. Like you know, I think CockroachDB was one of the first projects to really embed things like etcd to say, hey, let's make the operational costs much lower by trying to embed these things. So I'm really glad that the etcd team decided to make etcd not just a standalone server. There's something that you could embed in other applications. And the CockroachDB team, which builds a distributed, like Postgres-compatible database, helped us make sure that it worked well as a library as well. How is Kubernetes the hard way doing? I see that you're still maintaining it. Yeah, I think that thing has been getting maintenance for me for about <laughs> four or five years. It's an important document. You know, I think a lot of people, we always talk about make something easy, make something easy. And I always ask for who, right? So maybe someone that is just going to use Kubernetes, I agree. You should just make it easy. Something like GKE Autopilot is cool. The cluster's hidden. You know, Fargate has similar ambitions. That's cool. But if you are a platform team or you're the person responsible for fixing it when it breaks, then you need not necessarily easy. You want understanding. So Kubernetes a hard way is really about saying, as I learn more about Kubernetes, as the project updates and changes, let me keep that document up to date so as newcomers come in or anyone that wants a refresher, 
They can step through it. It's tedious on purpose. It's like building a 10,000 piece jigsaw puzzle. But it's tedious so that way you know where all the pieces fit. So when you're done, you can step back and see the big picture and say, I built that. And that instills a different level of confidence than you know clicking the automation button and having something else do that. Yeah, you and I both worked at Puppet at different times. And I know that when I was doing that sort of automation, step one was to do it the manual way, right? Because you can't really automate the thing unless you really understand what it takes to stand it up. That's a big, big, big component to, I think, any skill set. Lots of people rush too quickly to automation. Like I've seen people will try to leverage a new cloud service by starting to write a Terraform module or manifest first. I'm like, that might work, but why? Step back. Maybe try to figure it out with G Cloud in a repeatable way so you can destroy it and then see all the G Cloud commands. And then once you really understand all the things, you can get feedback and say, hey, is this thing I stood up, is it secure? Am I using all the right flags and settings? Once you understand all of that, okay, go back through it one more time. And then when you got it right, then you start to serialize what you've learned into a tool like Terraform. Yeah. Do you still do the empathy sessions with the Kubernetes engineers? Yeah, so this is a thing now we kind of do across cloud. There's a person named Kim Bannerman. She kind of took over as a program manager. So she's a technical program manager, TPEM at Google. And she tuck in, what they do is Google's really good at this, right? You know, someone like me starts this thing called empathy. And, you know, it's kind of this hands-on hackathon workshop. How do we make our products better? kind of session where we combine different skill sets. And I did that for a number of years. And then eventually Kim came along probably about two and a half years ago and they decided to make it a program. So her goal, and she did an excellent job at this. Mm -hmm. She got more people involved. We did some train the trainers. So now we have so many other people, not just in DevRel, but other parts of the business that can just run their own empathy session take feedback in a way that leaves, number one, permanent empathy with all the people building things for our customers. Two, it helps us reprioritize the roadmap and use real hands-on experience to make our case. So yeah, that thing is running well, and I think we're going to start doing it with real customers. Right? We've done that once before, but what does it look like if you go to a customer and have Google engineers partner with the customer to build oh, wow. something. That is, that's going to be really dope. So I'm looking forward to those when we kick them off. That's super cool. How do you approach work-life balance? You've got a daughter. You've got a job that I'm sure can be pretty demanding at times. You've been around long enough to probably have felt the pain with those things. I've been very lucky that I would probably say for the least 10 years, people have accepted the whole person. Not Kelsey the engineer, not Kelsey the conference speaker, but the whole person. So that means I don't have to, as much, try to be two different people, right? I can actually be a compassionate person when talking to customers. I can display empathy on and off the clock. The way I go about learning things, right? You know, maybe like a lot of other tech people, some of this is also my hobby, so I, got to, I get to intermix a lot of these things. The skill set, you know, for example, when my wife was in the classroom or where she was the building administrator, she works at the district office now, but I remember they were generating 
you know, you get your grades, your GPA, you give out these awards. And so they were generating awards and the principals and vice principals would split up the work. And for like hundreds of kids, you got to go in there to a little PDF template, put the kid's name and put their GPA and do it for all the kids. So what they would do is take a spreadsheet and copy and paste fields into these templates and divide the work. And, you know, maybe after three or four days doing it here and there, they'll be done with the awards. I was like, what are you doing? Please stop. What are you stopping, please? And so what I did was like, all right, you're the expert here, but let's work on this together, right? You know what needs to happen. And so you got the data, but the data you have, it's, it's like weird. You can't programmatically get at it. So how about we order the data in the spreadsheet in a certain way, and then what I can do is I can rip it out of the spreadsheet, and I'm just going to use Google Slides to make a template because Google Slides has an API, and I can loop through the spreadsheet one row at a time and create a new slide with all the right information using the award template as the background. And I was like, now here's what we're going to do. And it took like a day, less than a few hours to really get everything hooked up and wired up. I said, hey, how about this? Go to work and say, you'll do all the awards this semester. And they take on other work. And you'll do it all by yourself. So the team, you're going to take one for the team. And she was like, deal. She's like, how long is it going to take? I said, oh, let me run it for you. And you know, it's a command line tool. So I put it on her machine. I was like, all right, this is what you got to do. All you got to do is open the spreadsheet and tell it the name of the spreadsheet and the name of the slide deck and just go. And so in like three, four seconds, she was like, no way. I was like, yes. All you got to do is put data in the spreadsheet and awards come out the other end, download as PDF, send to the printer. She was like, okay, but that's, that's the work-life balance where I can take my skill set from over here and improve the lives of people in my family and teach them how to use some of these tools to automate things in their own life. That's fantastic. So we had some listener questions. I should uh, start getting to some of those. Magno Logan on Twitter asked, how to manage secrets in Kubernetes in the most secure way? Is it better to use a third-party tool like Vault than just to encrypt secrets on etcd? So I always think about this in three ways when it comes to Kubernetes. One, own what you're doing now. Everyone likes to pretend like we're not using Puppet Chef and Ansible to copy unencrypted files to a file system <laughs> and then having apps read that unencrypted file and probably God knows what other apps are reading that file. And that usually has the keys to your database castle. That's, that's usually what people are doing. I know people pretend like that's not, that's the status quo. And you can probably get your FedRAMP certification with that. For real. So, okay. That's where we're coming from. So let's make sure we understand position zero. So what does Kubernetes offer out of the box? So before we add it, encrypted inside of database, inside of etcd, because you can do it for any object, not just secrets. But let's say day one, what Kubernetes was to me, was more like a cache. So today we say, if you have a puppet module or you're using something like Factor or Hira, that secret lives somewhere. It needs to be accessible if you really want to automate it or let someone's going to sit there and type the key to decrypt it. So it's going to be somewhere. So in the Kubernetes world, we say, hey, let, instead of copying it to all of the servers, how about we store it in the Kubernetes API in this database at CD? And then as a secret object, that gives you the ability to say, 
you that are using kubectl you can see config maps deployment services but not secrets that's the only thing that makes them special that they have a different name and that different name can be used with the RBAC system to prevent people from seeing things that they shouldn't see. Right, so that's a core tenet of it. So now it's cached, and when it's referenced at deploy time, if you approve that reference, then over an encrypted channel, the agent will go pull the secret, put it on the file system, usually a temporary one, and then inject it only to the container that should see it. For most people, that is a net improvement over what you're doing now, even with your PCI certification, just Kubernetes. Now, when you encrypt it at rest, then we get even better. So that's number two. Turn on the native encryption for specific objects. You can do it with the built-in stuff, or you can use your KMS provider, like you know Google KMS Manager, where it can do the encryption and decryption using service accounts. So you have that, and that just makes the story even better. And then lastly, what you can do is maybe you want something that does secrets management. Kubernetes does not do secrets management. It can cache them. It doesn't rotate them. It doesn't do any of those things. And you need something like Vault. So with Vault, you have a couple of options. With Vault, you can also cache. You can use Vault for secret management, like the, the DBA team that puts the database password in a spreadsheet then gives it to the people who need it. Well, Vault could be a better form <laughs> of that while Secrets are generated in Vault, but you could sync them to all the Kubernetes clusters so that they're cached there, so then Kubernetes can localize who gets them and distribute them. It's like a cache. And then what that does is means that you can map them to environment variables. I don't know if that's the best idea. Or you can map them to file systems like you normally do. That's another option. So that gets you back into using standard tools, even though Vault is behind the scenes. And then lastly, you have the sidecar pattern, which is you still tell something that I want you to go get a secret, but maybe the little Vault sidecar like console template that has credentials from Kubernetes to go talk to Vault directly, grab the secrets, and then map them in the same way that Kubernetes would. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. You don't have to change your app. Um, you can have the sidecar do the heavy lifting using the credentials that came from Kubernetes. And I guess there is one more thing you could do. If you want to go all in, you can use a library to talk to something like Google Secret Manager or Vault directly. And then what happens in that case, typically, if you want good automation, you still get your service account from Kubernetes to say, hey, I want to be able to go talk to Vault. So when I boot up, it will be there. I'll give it to Vault. And then based on Vault's policy, it will give me some secrets back. So it's not really the best. you got to look at where you're starting. You can get net improvement along the way. And some people would argue maybe using a vault library is the purest from a security standpoint. But remember, you have risk. That service account token gets taken, then everyone with that service account token will be able to ask vault for the same credentials you got. So in some ways, you're kind of moving the problem around. It's the auditing that Kubernetes and vault provides. That's the real big value add here is about who had the secret, when did they get it, and for how long did they have it, and let's make it short-lived so they can't do as much damage if they manage to get it. Right. All right, I think we maybe have time for one more question. This is from at Borco D. Is there anything about Kubernetes that you think more people should know about or is underappreciated? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people focus on the complexity, but the problem is equally complex. And in many ways, if you study this system, then you'll see that 
is fairly elegant in how it's assembled. And that CRD mechanism, this ability to say that what you get when you download Kubernetes for the first time, or you click the button, you get a cluster. What you're looking at is probably like a container orchestration platform. Cool. You tell it how to run your apps, and then it runs your apps for you. And then you might look at that and say, oh, I could build that myself, right? The classic uh, engineer response to new technology. <laughs> but when you look at it, the fact that you can use custom resource definitions to describe a different system like Istio, now Kubernetes becomes like what I think of as a universal control plane. Sometimes when I say universal control plane, it's like, Kelsey, how dare you say Kubernetes will be the only control plane for everything? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying universal in the form of a Swiss army knife. If you only had one tool, you might want a Swiss army knife because it has lots of other little tools. Maybe not the best of breed tools, but they have enough for you to do multiple things. Kubernetes is like that in many ways, where I can describe another control plane. And the value there is that I can give a data model with semantic meaning and take and leverage the entire Kubernetes ecosystem by simply extending Kubernetes with its native API extension mechanism. That's extremely powerful. Like I think it's gonna take people a while to really understand and appreciate just how elegant a system is because most systems we have, the ones that live the longest, they tend to have great extension systems. The Linux kernel, even Git to some degree, Terraform, anything that can be extended by other people means that it can be around for a long time and evolve with the use cases. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I think that's all the time that we have. I wanna thank you so much for coming on. It's been super great to catch up with you. I haven't seen you in a while and it's been great to see your smile and hear about what you've been up to. Um, is there anything that you wanna like plug before we go? Yeah, I, I think honestly, when you look at, it's an exciting time to be in tech right now. I mean, if you look at all the, I was just browsing the CNCF sandbox projects and we all like to joke about how many there are and the landscape seems to be getting bigger and bigger. But think about what's going on right now. We've gone from people thinking that this stuff was secret sauce to them being eager to share with the world, including the source code, including things like documentation. People are making videos to explain why it exists and how you can use it too. This is a very important period of a knowledge transfer that's happening in our industry where the gates are coming down. You don't necessarily need a PhD anymore to really get to be around the people that are thinking at this level, doing research at this level, right? So I think that don't miss what's happening right now. Ignore the hype, but do not miss the big knowledge dump that's going on and it's being done in a way where you can go contribute to it. So that's what I want to leave people with. Awesome. Well, thanks again. I hope to see you again someday when people are walking around. I've been out in Portland a little bit more myself lately since I've been vaccinated and it's been nice. Are you planning to go to KubeCon in LA? Um, I don't know. I am vaccinated though, but you know, I think if the climate is right, I know it's going to be crazy, right? When people get back together, it's going to be bananas. So maybe I shouldn't miss it for the world. <laughs> Maybe I'll see you there. Later. Cube Cuddle is created and hosted by me, Rich Burroughs. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider telling a friend. It helps a lot. Big thanks to Emily Griffin, who designed the logo. You can find her at DaveBrighton.com. And thanks to Mon Placer for our music. 
You can find more of his work at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Thanks a lot for listening. 